Okay, Acts 21, 37 through 22, 11. This is the word of God. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a town of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to make to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Johnny, and thanks, Colton. Um, I've never been one to sign off on my emails in any particular way. Uh, sometimes I'll put sincerely if it's more formal. Uh, I had an over 10-year run of putting take care. Seems like that's pretty solid, right? Um, uh, I, I don't think I do a, a whole lot. Like I said, I, I, I probably just kind of end it abruptly, maybe sound rude. Sometimes it seems rude in text and email. But anyway, uh, one popular way among Christians to sign off on an email is to put in Christ. Uh, I've never really used that one. Uh, no particular reason. I, I guess um, for me, when, I, if, when you introduce a theological topic, I start thinking too much. i like, well, what does that mean if I say an email? And so anyway, I'll probably overthink it. Um, but that phrase is, is real common. Uh, and if you, if you do that, don't feel like I'm about to ask you not to do it. It's fine. Keep doing it. But uh, it is one of those phrases in Christ you see a lot, uh, and you might not think much about it. It's just kind of like, it's kind of like when we pray, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just like, well, why do we do that? Like, we just do it. You know, and we might not think as much. We should in our prayers that way. But we might not think much about why we do it. And so sometimes when a phrase becomes so common, we can begin to miss the, the significance of what's behind that, that phrase. When it becomes familiar, we can lose the, the weight of its meaning. Uh, so the, the idea of being in Christ carries with it uh, the, what uh, theologians call union with Christ. And I would say to the extent that you understand uh, the idea of union with Christ is the extent to which you understand the gospel. Uh, John Murray said this about union with Christ. He said, union with Christ 
is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. And uh, a guy named uh, uh, Lewis Smeeds put it really well. He said this. He said, speaking of this doctrine of union with Christ, it is at once the center and circumference of authentic human existence. So the center, like right in the middle and everything around it is this idea of union with Christ. And he said, he was, he was speaking in reference of an authentic human existence. And so this is one of those things we probably haven't thought enough about. Uh, and even as I'm thinking about it now, I don't feel like I'm going to do it justice to, to, to bring about the weight that I think it carries. Uh, so, so today I want to do a deep dive on the subject of union with Christ. Now, you might be thinking, we just read that passage, and what does that have to do with that? Well, there's a sense, I'm not going to depart from that text as much as I'm going to zoom in on verses 6 through 8. So, so much outside of verses 6 through 8, I am going to neglect this morning. But the, the conversion story of Paul is told three times in Acts, so I feel like we got some wiggle room to, to move around. Uh, also, uh, you've probably heard me or other preachers at some point, they're, they're preaching through something and they read a, a verse and like, man, I, I could spend a whole you know, sermon on that verse. Well, that's what I'm going to do. It's one of those things, it's like a little verse, and I'm just going to spend a whole sermon on verses 6 through 8. Uh, so anyway, my, my two points are, are these, and I'm going to pull them out of verses 6 through 8. Number one is what union with Christ is, and number two, what union with Christ does. All right, so let's look at verse 6 through 8, this interaction between Jesus and Paul. <clears throat> so read, read this. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light fell from heaven, or a light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, and he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So Paul is persecuting the church. But Jesus asked, why are you persecuting me? And then when Paul asked who he is, he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, it would be easy to read over this and not make too big of a deal of it. It's, it's kind of like maybe a parent might say, hey, you mess with my kid, you're messing with me. But, but from what the rest of the Bible teaches, I think it's a little bit more than something sentimental. It's not just a way to communicate you know, great affection. Now, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little bit more of a deep dive than usual. So everybody turn to Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up on your phone, your Bible, because it's going to be kind of too much to just kind of remember. But uh, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 7. All right. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see the identity of Christ mingled with the identity of his people. And uh, Daniel 7 is one of those, uh, one of those books of the prophets, and uh, there's, there's visions and interpretations of these visions. And Daniel 7 is kind of easy to get your mind around to, to this extent. The first part is a vision, and the second part is the interpretation of the vision. So the first part of Daniel 7, here's a vision. Second part, here's what the vision means. It's an interpretation of the vision. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I am going to read Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. All right, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven, that's significant, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And this part's significant too. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So this cloud rider is given a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So make a note of this. The, the one that's like the son of man is riding on the clouds of heaven and he is given a kingdom. I bet you think you know who that is. All right. But, but before I read the interpretation in Daniel 7, let's flip over to Matthew 26. And I want to see how Jesus interpreted this verse. So if you flip over to Matthew 26, we're going to look at verse 64. Jesus is, this is when he's being accused, about to go to the cross. He's sitting before uh, uh, Caiaphas in the council. He's being accused. They ask him if he is the Christ, the Son of God. And then listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 64. He says this, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven riding on the clouds. So it seems that Jesus would have understood him, or understood the, the one riding on the clouds, the one like the Son of Man, to be himself, right? I mean, he just said it. It's pretty clear. I don't think there's really any arguing around that. Okay, now with that in mind, we're going to flip back to Daniel chapter 7. And, and let's see what the interpretation says, because clearly Jesus is saying that he's the cloud rider from Daniel chapter 7. That seems to be without dispute. But let's look at the interpretation in Daniel chapter 7 and in verse 15 to 18. Uh, but, but, but before we get there, I want, you to call, I want to call your attention uh, in verse 13 and 14. There is one like the Son of Man has been given a kingdom. All right, but now we're going to look at verse 15 to 18. And we're going to see this Son of Man, this son of man character uh, who's, who's being given a kingdom. We're going to see who that is. All right, verse 15. As for me, Daniel... My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him for the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the thing. So Daniel got the, the vision, and now he's going to get the interpretation. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. We didn't cover that. It's four beasts that, that are describing four kingdoms, four kings. So that's it. Verse 18 significant for us. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, one like the Son of Man will be given a kingdom, and that is described in verse 18 as the saints of the Most High, as God's people. Y'all, that's us. <laughs> Isn't that weird? So Jesus, looking back, he says, he says that's him. He's the one that's going to be given the kingdom. But then in the interpretation in Daniel 7, it's the saints of the Most High. It's God's people. It's us. So it's confusing. But what's amazing is that neither Jesus or the interpretation in Daniel 7 are wrong. They're both right. And how can they both be right? Because of union with Christ. They are united. They're one. To speak of one is to speak of the other. And y'all, this is actually how the gospel works. Union with Christ is what saves us. The reason the life and death of Jesus has any meaning for us is because we could be united to him in it. For example, all right, turn to 2 Corinthians 5. I know we're doing a lot of flipping. 
Um, turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and look at verse 21. This is shorter, so if you don't have your Bibles, don't, it's not a huge deal. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is short, you can remember it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's how the gospel actually works. Our sin, the, the past, present, and future, is united to Christ on the cross and dealt with. That's where it says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that the righteousness of Christ, the perfect record of Jesus, might be united to us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is how God saves us, through being united with Christ. He is united with us and takes our sin. We are united with him and get his righteousness, his perfect record. That's why it is so maddening when Christians think they can be saved by being good enough or, or by some kind of sin management, by not, by not being too, too bad. You being good enough or not bad enough will never be enough. It doesn't work. The only thing that works for salvation is union with Christ. The two things you need in order to not go to hell is for your sins to be punished and you need a perfect record of obedience. Jesus provides both of those for his people. And the way that's accessed, the way that union with Christ is accessed and counts for you is through faith and repentance. And faith is believing that what Jesus did worked. And repentance means turning from your sin to follow Jesus. And that is how union with Christ can be yours. And that is how union with Christ is yours. And I would say again, to the extent to which you understand union with Christ, that's the extent to which you understand and rest in the gospel. You aren't saved by accepting Jesus, whatever that means. You aren't saved by asking him into your heart, again, whatever that means, or making a decision for Christ. You are saved by being united with Christ by faith and repentance. So that's what union with Christ is is. Now, let's spend some time on what union with Christ does. All right. Union with Christ changed the way that Paul saw himself. Listen to what he says in Galatians 2.20. I'm going to give you a break from flipping around. If you're, if you're quick on the draw, go ahead. Galatians 2.20 says this. Uh, Paul, Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul understood his union with Christ to be to the point that he wasn't even living his life, but that Christ was living through him. He was a vessel for Christ to fill and live through. Um, Some of you guys might have seen the movie Avatar. Uh, a lot of Christians don't like it because it kind of flirts with pantheism. It's kind of kind of weird in some ways, and they're not they're not wrong. I mean, I, I can get past it. It's just just a movie, but um, but anyway, the, the idea is there's this paralyzed marine uh, who's basically able to to transfer his his himself, his mind, his conscience, whatever, into the body of one of the Navi, and the Navi are these kind of alien Indian giant creatures, and so anyway, he's able to to transfer himself into this body. And and, and what union with Christ teaches us is that as Christians, 
We should be something like an avatar for Jesus. And let me say, hey, this analogy falls apart in several different places, I know. But kind of work, work with me here. I had a buddy, well, never mind, never mind. I'll just say, I had a buddy make a Facebook post about this analogy. And man, he just got, it was just, it was a bad analogy. And he had like all his guys were like theological neatniks and they just ripped them apart. So I'll, I'll save you that. Um, but that's why I gave this little preface, like it falls apart because I don't want to experience what this guy experienced. But anyway... The idea of Jesus actually living and acting and speak, speaking through us, using our personality, using our gifts, even using our pain. Even when you think about the scriptures, like our, the scriptures are, are from God. They're written by men, right? And, and God used their, their personality, um, their, their, the ways that he's, he's made them to speak to us. So God really spoke to us through the scriptures, but he used men to do that. And again, the analogy falls apart because we don't have the same authority that the apostles who are the scriptures have, but there's this idea of God working through his people for us to be his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece. So if we really want to change, change is not going to happen by us trying harder. And actually trying harder can almost get in the way. But it's asking God to work through us offering ourselves daily and moment by moment to be a vessel for him, to do what he wants us to do, to say what he wants us to say. And, and, and for many of us, trying, as we're trying to live out the Christian life, we want to change, we want to do better. We don't give thought to union with Christ. We, we tend to go first to, I'm going to get up earlier, I'm going to read more, I'm going to pray more, things we're going to do. And that's not like totally off, but... It's going to be lacking significant power if you're not thinking about union with Christ. Listen to how Paul rebuked the Galatians uh, in Galatians chapter 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what Paul is saying here is the same way that we're saved is the same way that we're changed. If you want to become more like Jesus, you need to approach it more like your salvation. It is Christ that saves us and it is Christ that changes us. And I think this can be life changing for someone. It it was for me. So um, I'm one of those stories where I'm not sure if I became a Christian when I was 12 when I was 20, something significant happened when I was 12. Maybe I became a Christian then. Uh, but whatever happened when I was 20, it, it stuck. Like, it's, it's still with me now. Um, and, and I wouldn't have described it this way then when I was 20. But I think what I was introduced to that really changed me was this idea of union with Christ, specifically through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers. And, and the idea, I remember I was hanging out with a buddy of mine. And he was kind of showing me, I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ crew, and he was kind of taking me through some things about the Holy Spirit. And he introduced this idea of me of, of just that the way that we change is kind of like the way that we're saved. It's through dependence on God. And that was a, a new concept for me, that change was more of a matter of dependence than effort. And y'all, I haven't been the same since. And so there was a conscious effort to surrender my life and for me, what was more, even more difficult was that next moment, that afternoon, to surrender that to Christ, to live, to act, to speak through me. And I think if we live by that in a moment by moment sense, knowing we don't have it in the tank in and of ourselves, 
Like even when we start to list out these things to do, like if I were to give you, if I were to say, hey, Redeemer Church, this week we're all going to read 100 chapters of the Bible. Like there's something within all of us that starts to get angry, right? It's just these rules, these laws, it's, it's, there's something in that. But here's the thing, Christ in you, you might read a thousand chapters in a week because you want to do it. You get a, it's like eating. It's like having a steak. It's something that you want to do. And so you think, Jesus, arise that longing in me that you've put in me. So there's something that will change us if we do that. Now, on this uh, idea of union with Christ, I, I want to I transition it and talk about two different areas. It might seem like an like a awkward pivot, but I think there's two areas. They're kind of related, and they, they have to do with union with Christ. Uh, they have to do with uh, singles, those not married, and those who are married. So first, uh, with those who are single, and this, again, this might seem like a, a random pivot, um, but this is where union with Christ is going to come into play. And, and I'll, I'll start off with this. You should not be sexually active until marriage. I told you it was a hard pivot. <laughs> so um, here's why, and that's probably nothing new to you, and that's probably something you, you have heard on the list of do's and don'ts and all that, not supposed to do, you know, to, to be that till you're married. But there's more to it than just being on the list of things you ought not do side. And there's, it has something to do with the way you see your body. That it's, a, it's a part of the body of Jesus and so it's like bringing Jesus into something sinful. So, so listen to this. This is in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20. It says this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with them. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Sometimes single people can be casual about sex. Sometimes Christians who are single can be casual about sexual activity. You need to remember that your body is holy. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is united to Christ. Your body is the place where Jesus works in this world. So sex and sexual activity is like fire. Fire is great when it's in the right place, like a fireplace or a stove. But in the wrong place, like a gas station or an attic, it's dangerous. So, so don't forget that your body, Christian, is more holy than any church building or sanctuary that has ever been built. It would be much better for this church to be awfully defamed, for somebody to come into the sanctuary and write all kinds of just explicit, uh, pr- profane things in the outside, inside. It would be much better for that to happen than for any Christian to be sexually immoral. It'd be much better to... to, to Profane the building because you're the temple of God, not not the place we meet. Secondly, union with Christ is relevant for those who are married. Married is meant to be a picture of union with Christ. That that might be the whole reason God even gave us the institution of marriage. Listen to Ephesians 5, 28 to 32. 
It says, in the same way, husbands, and just listen to, to the, the language of union here. Uh, Ephesians 5, 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now look, I know marriage can be hard sometimes. Marriage at its best is oneness. And, and, and we sometimes get glimpses of this, um, and it can kind of be in funny ways too. You, know, you're, you and your spouse are in the same room, something happens, and you totally know what they're thinking. Um, you know exactly what's going on. And sometimes you'll even, you know, maybe something happens with the kids. You're like, hey, before you tell mom, I want to be in the room. I got to see her face because I, I, I know she's going to react to this. And, and part of why you want to be there is because you know. You're, you're, you're one with that person. And, and part of why it can be so difficult in marriage is when you don't experience this. A, a lack of oneness in marriage is painful. And here's something to consider in that is that sometimes we can be more aware of a lack of oneness in marriage than we are aware of lack of oneness in Christ. And so maybe that pain we feel in our marriage, that lack of oneness, is meant to point us to a lack of oneness with Christ that we aren't even aware that we're experiencing. And if you're thriving in your relationship with Jesus, so if you're a person who is thriving in your relationship with Jesus, it should not feel like busyness. You shouldn't feel very busy. It should feel like oneness. It should feel like you're thinking his thoughts. And and, and one other thing to note about union with Christ, when Paul was persecuting the church, this is the context. Paul was on his way to persecute the church. Jesus, you know, he he, um, interrupted his his mission, shown up in a a bright light. When Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus felt it. Not long before that, Paul stood by as stones were being thrown at Stephen. And I don't know how many stones were thrown at him. I don't know where the stones hit him. I don't know exactly what happened, but whatever happened, enough stones were thrown at him for his heart to stop. Jesus felt those stones. Here is a sweet thing to remember about Jesus. When people hurt you, when people hurt you, he feels it. You need to know that about Jesus. And on the flip side of that, when you hurt other people who belong to Jesus, he feels that. You're hurting him too. So be careful how you treat people. Perhaps Jesus could say to you, why are you hurting me? So be careful how you treat people, especially God's people. The doctrine of union with Christ is a beautiful thing. Union with Christ is what saves us, and union with Christ is what changes us. May God help us to know it and to experience it in a deeper way. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son. His life, his perfect record of obedience can be counted towards our record and our awful record of disobedience can be laid on him at the cross and paid in full. And so would you help us to remember that for our salvation, that we would know that we can't save ourselves, that our only hope is in Christ. And would you help us to remember that, that the only way we really change is for Jesus to live through us, not by greater efforts from looking within to our own strengths, but by looking to Christ in us to change us. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.